Good morning, church. Grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to this time of worship at Faith Community United Methodist. Good to be with you in worship this morning. Please uh, do take a moment to sign the attendance pads that you'll find in each of the pew racks and pass them along to others worshiping with you this morning so that we have a record of your presence here with us on this uh, first Sunday of Advent. Uh, your uh, announcements are in the bulletin insert. I'd encourage you to look over that. There's a, there's a lot listed there. We have uh, the St. Paul's Christmas tree out here. Uh, still, still need some more gifts uh, for the children at St. Paul's, so uh, those need to be back by next Sunday. So if you haven't gotten yours back already, you want to make sure that you're doing your shopping this Sunday. So you can take a tag with you. It tells you whether you're buying for a boy or a girl and what age and, uh, or an adult, and uh, buy those gifts. Bring them back unwrapped and place them by the Christmas tree there, uh, unwrapped uh, by next Sunday so that those can get to where they're going. Next Sunday, we are doing the, uh, the cookie sale, asking you to, to bring some homemade, if you're a, a baker, bring some homemade cookies uh, to sell uh, about $5 worth of cookies. You can put them on a plate or in a tin or however you want to dress those up. And uh, we'll be selling those uh, next Sunday morning. You can offer your cookies for sale and buy other cookies and we'll have a, a good variety of Christmas cookies uh, for this season. Uh, all of the money that we raise uh, from that cookie sale is going to uh, pur purchase holiday craft supplies for the children in the uh, Xenia area shelters. The children in the shelters in this area uh, we're going to buy some holiday craft supplies for them. So please uh, bring some cookies next week and buy some cookies next week uh, as we raise that money. Next Sunday is also our Blue Christmas service uh, here in the sanctuary at 2.30. Uh, the harp music will begin at 2.15. And so I hope that you will come join us for that and bring others as well who might uh, benefit from a Blue Christmas service. The, there's an insert in your bulletin that on one side has the reading for the lighting of the Advent wreath. The other side is your poinsettia order form. So you want to uh, get your poinsettia orders in so that we can uh, order those. Uh, those orders need to be in by Sunday, uh, December 11th. There's a couple of other things coming up on December 11th. Looking forward, we've got the uh, 
community Christmas concert band at 3 o'clock. We've got the family night at 5 o'clock here at the church. Uh, so lots of things coming up. I hope you'll put those all on your calendar. We are here uh, this morning to offer God our praise, so let us be in a spirit of worship as the choir brings the music of the introit. Would you please stand as you are able for our call to worship? The days are surely coming, says our God, when justice and righteousness will appear. Lift up your souls in trust and praise. Open your hearts and minds to God's teaching. God's grace will be demonstrated to us, and we will seek to walk in them all our days. Render thanksgiving to God for all life's benefits. Watch and pray in holiness and abiding faith. And may we join together in our opening prayer. In obedience and trust, we approach you, God of the covenant. Day by day, your promises are fulfilled among us. Our redemption is drawing near. Help us to prepare ourselves and our communities for Christ's coming. Equip us now to worship you with all the saints, past and present, nearby and far away. Amen. And if you would remain standing for our opening hymn, Hail to the Lord's Anointed, number 203.
Please be seated for the lighting of the Advent wreath. glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. We are glad whether we drove in, climbed up, whether we logged in or tuned in. We are glad to be here in this community with this family. It is a place of joyful hope, of radical welcome. It is a place where together we can wait in wondrous anticipation of the kingdom to come. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that God may teach us God's ways and that we may walk in God's path. We light this candle as a sign of our hope, our joyous hope that we can be restored, our faith restored, our strength restored, our confidence restored, our joy restored, as we watch and wait with all God's people for the promise to be fulfilled. Thank you. And can I have the children come up and join me in the front here for the children's message? Good morning. So we just lit this candle here. And what is this, this thing that it's on, what is that called? An Advent wreath. It's called an Advent wreath, and those are called Advent candles. Do, you, do any of you have uh, Advent calendars at your house? Yeah, you do? What's in your Advent calendar? Like sometimes chocolate and stuff. Sometimes chocolate, yeah. Any, any others have an Advent calendar? Any? So... We have these, these things, Advent wreaths, Advent candles, Advent calendars. Anybody know what the word Advent means? What is Advent? Any idea? You look like maybe you have a thought. Ad, the word Advent means coming. And it means somebody really important is coming, and we need to get ready so that we're prepared when he comes. So any idea who that really important person that is coming might be? Yeah? Jesus. Jesus, yeah, yeah. So, so Advent is a time in the church when we prepare for Jesus' coming. We, we do it right before Christmas because we remember how he came to earth in the baby Jesus, and so we're preparing for Christmas during Advent. Um, what, do you, what do you do to prepare for Christmas at your house? How do you, you put up your Christmas decorations. What else do you do? Put up the Christmas tree. Okay, anything else that you do to get ready for Christmas? Put Christmas lights outside. Put Christmas lights outside. Yeah. Anything else? Presents. Yeah, you, you have to buy presents and wrap presents, right? You can't, you're not ready for Christmas until you got some presents. Yeah. What, anything else you do to prepare for Christmas? So, that, so those types of things help us prepare for celebrating the holiday of Christmas. But what about preparing for the coming of Jesus? 
How do we prepare for the coming of Jesus? Any ideas about that? Going to church is a good thing. Being here on, Ad, on the first Sunday of Advent is a good way of preparing. Other ideas? We can, we can pray. We can read our Bibles. Yeah? Did I steal yours? <laughs> yeah. So praying, reading our Bibles, going to church, uh, focusing on our faith is, is really, we, you know, getting ready for Christmas isn't just about the the gifts and the cookies and, and the decorations. It's about being ready for Jesus to come into our homes, to come into our hearts, to come into our lives. And focusing on what he means for us is really what this season of Advent is all about. Let's have a prayer. Gracious Jesus, as we prepare for your coming, may you be in our hearts. May you uh, just prepare us to receive all that you have for us. We pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen. All right. Thank you for coming up. Our prayer hymn this morning is number 196 in the hymnals. And uh, let, as we remain seated, let us sing together in prayer, Come, Thou Long-Expected Jesus. ask your prayers for the Booth family. Uh, many of you are aware that Matt, Matt Booth uh, died a few days ago, and uh, of course his family is grieving and uh, planning for 
services, I want to let you know that the uh, viewing will be here at the church on Wednesday evening from 5 to 8, and then the funeral will be here on Thursday morning at 10 a.m. So I uh, just want to let you know about that and just ask you to be in prayer for Sharon and for Mike uh, as they go through this, this difficult time. We lift up other concerns uh, that are on our hearts this morning to our Lord in this time of silence. Let us pray. O oh Lord, you have promised to be with us through every trial and difficulty. You have promised to walk with us through every dark valley. And so we pray, Lord, that you will indeed be with those this day who are going through times of grief and turmoil, that they would know that they can turn to you, that you will lift them up, that you will give peace and consolation. And Lord, for whatever trials we might be going through, we turn to you, looking for you to make a way where we can see no way. Lord, work through each one of us individually, work through this congregation as we minister to you and to one another, as we offer words of hope and peace and joy and love to one another and to the community around us. May you work through our offerings and through all that we do to bring hope to others, to bring the message of this season of Christ coming to each one of us. For Lord, you love us so much that you sent your only Son to us that he might save us. And so we, in thanksgiving, offer ourselves back to you for all that you have done for us and all that you are. May we glory in you forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. As we offer to you now the prayer that he teaches us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The ushers come to wait upon us now as we continue to worship through the giving of our tithes and offerings.
Please join me in the prayer of dedication. Thank you, God, for this family of faith, which enriches our lives and enables us to share. Thank you for making us aware that some faint with fear and others dwell in hopelessness. We are grateful that you show us ways to lift the burdens of our sisters and brothers. May our offerings further this ministry among us and beyond our community. Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of the gospel. And our gospel lesson for this first Sunday in Advent is from the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 11 through 20. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak, until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in time. The word of God for the people of God. Be to God. Amen.
It's hard to imagine the Christmas story without any angels. Angels play some of the key roles throughout the biblical story. It's one of the favored roles of any Christmas pageant. Angels hover above every artistic depiction of the birth of Christ. I have an advent calendar at home that is uh, made of felt. This one doesn't have chocolate in it. This one has uh, figures from the nativity scene in it made of, of felt. There are 25 pockets on the bottom, each with a different figure in it, and there's the nativity scene above, and each day you take one of the figures out and place it on the nativity scene beginning on December 1st. And when I get it out, there, then now there are, of these 25 figures, three of them are angels. And when I get it out and put the figures in the pockets, I always make sure to place one of those three angels either in the very first day or very early in that first week. Because how can the story even begin without an angel coming to proclaim the good news? Throughout this season of Advent and Christmas, we're going to be reading biblical stories of the angels of Christmas and those to whom they brought the message. Angels, of course, are not unique to the Christmas story. Angels appear in a variety of places throughout the Old Testament. Much has been made of angels in popular culture, even apart from biblical faith. But the way that we often picture angels is not the way that they are so often described in the Bible. There are certain types of angels, cherubim and seraphim, that are described as having wings, but many of the Bible passages in which angels appear say nothing of wings or flowing robes or harps or halos. Although most of our paintings and pageants show them as girls, the Bible never depicts angels as female. In fact, in many of the Old Testament stories, they are simply called men. It is only in retrospect that the other people in the story realize that the men with whom they have been interacting were, in fact, angels. The Greek word used for angel in the New Testament means messenger. That's what an angel is, a messenger, a heavenly messenger, a divine messenger. But in terms of appearance, they look so much like us that in many of the stories, it's hard to tell if they are humans or if they are divine beings or if in some cases, perhaps even God disguised in the appearance of a man. Think of the story of Jacob wrestling all night long. Was he wrestling with a man? Was he wrestling with an angel? Was he wrestling with God? You can read that story over and over again and come to a different conclusion each time. Difficult as they are sometimes to identify, we know that angels exist and that they play a significant role in delivering God's message to God's people. That is clearly the case in the stories leading up to Christ's birth. There is no mistaking the fact that angels abound throughout the narrative. It would be nearly impossible to tell the story of Christ's birth without mentioning the angels. The same cannot necessarily be said of Zechariah. When we think of biblical characters who play a key role in the birth narratives of Jesus, Zechariah is probably not the first that comes to mind. He's probably not the second, third, fourth, or fifth either. The innkeeper gets a bigger part than Zechariah in most Christmas pageants, and the Bible doesn't even mention an innkeeper. The Bible does tell us a whole lot about Zechariah, though. Zechariah was the husband of Elizabeth. Together they were the parents of John the Baptist. Even if you're only somewhat familiar with the Bible story, you probably have some recognition of Elizabeth. 
how she was a relative of Mary, how Mary came to her during the time when they were both pregnant, Elizabeth with John and Mary with Jesus, and how the child in Elizabeth's womb leapt for joy. Zechariah doesn't enter into that part of the story, but he played a significant role nonetheless, significant enough for Luke to spend the opening part of his gospel telling his story. Luke tells us several things up front about Zechariah. He tells us first that Zechariah lived during the reign of King Herod. That's not just a fact of history that Luke wants to convey. This whole story, a story about Christ, who is the true king of the Jews and truly king over all creation, the whole story is set against the backdrop of a despotic puppet king. Zechariah, we, we are told, is a priest of the division of Abijah. Jewish priests were all descendants of Aaron, the brother of Moses. According to 1 Chronicles 24, the priests were ordered into 24 divisions, each named after one of Aaron's 24 sons. Luke identifies Zechariah with the line of Abijah. He doesn't tell us which of the 24 priestly lines Elizabeth came from, but he does tell us that she too was a daughter of Aaron. It was expected that women born into priestly families would marry a priest, and that is exactly what Elizabeth did. Each of the 24 divisions of priests took turns serving at the temple, and as each division took their turn, they would draw lots among all the priests in that division to determine which priest was selected to enter the holiest part of the temple and minister at the altar while everyone else waited outside. It might sound to us that, like that's leaving it all up to chance. Casting lots is much like rolling dice. But they didn't see it that way at all. For them, casting lots was a way of leaving it not to chance, but to God. The lot drawn would determine who God wanted to serve at the altar that day. So when the lot fell to Zechariah, he didn't feel lucky. He felt chosen. He felt blessed. Contrast that with what Luke had just told us about Zechariah and Elizabeth in verse 7. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. That was not what was expected in those days from someone who was chosen and blessed by God. In fact, it was commonly assumed that for a couple to go through life childless was a curse. Luke goes out of his way to assure us that that is not the case with this couple. Verse 6, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Luke knew that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous and that they were loved by God. God knew that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous and that they were loved by God. But did Zechariah know? He had to have felt a little bit dejected for the fact that he and his wife had been unable to pass on the priestly mantle that had meant so much to them and to their families. He must have felt some sense of inadequacy or judgment. But that day at the temple, the lot fell to him. God had chosen him to go into the holiest part of the temple and offer incense at the altar. While in there, fulfilling that great honor, serving on behalf of all the people gathered outside, standing before the altar of the Lord, 
an angel of the Lord appears to him, standing right next to the altar. The angel declares that Zechariah's prayer has been heard, that he and his wife will have a son, and that he will name him John. Furthermore, the angel goes on to tell him, not only will Zechariah and his wife have joy and gladness because of this child, but many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. As someone steeped in Israel's scriptures, Zechariah would have known this was hardly the first time God had acted graciously for a childless couple. He knew the story of Abraham and Sarah, to whom God had given the child Isaac in their old age. He'd have known the anguish of Hannah, who was the object of taunting over her infertility and so distraught by it that she promised she would dedicate her son to God's service if the Lord would see fit to open her womb, and how the prophet Samuel was the result of that pleading prayer. Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer would be answered as well. That was the message brought by the angel. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer will be answered, just as it had been for Abraham and Sarah, just as it had been for Hannah. The story of Hannah is particularly relevant here. Hannah, like so many other women mentioned in the Old Testament, was barren. Her husband, Elkanah, adored her, but Elkanah had a second wife who had been blessed with many children and who constantly taunted Hannah for her inability to conceive. God answered Hannah's pleading prayer. Samuel was the answer not only to Hannah's prayer, but to the prayers of an entire nation that was spiritually barren, constantly provoked by her enemy, the Philistines. As a priest, Samuel would turn the hearts of Israel back to their God. As a judge, he would lead them in battle and keep them safe. As a prophet, He anoints the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. He did this by applying oil to their heads, signifying that they have been chosen by God for this task. The baby about to be delivered through Elizabeth will be raised as a Nazarite, just as Samuel had been. And like Samuel, he is going to be a beacon of God's grace. For he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Like Samuel, John will be a priest, a judge, and a prophet. Just as Samuel anointed the heads of the kings of Israel, John the Baptist will anoint Jesus' head in the waters of baptism signifying God's anointing of him with the Holy Spirit, God's choosing of him for this particular task to be the true and eternal king of Israel. Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer is a blessing not just for them, but for all the people of God. This proclamation of the angel answers not just the prayer that they have been praying for a child, it answers a prayer that all of Israel have been praying for one who would come to prepare the way of the Lord. That's the way it is with these answered prayers, these miraculous births. God does does this not just to console the parents. He does it 
to bless the world. Zechariah knew this. He knew God's power. He knew these stories. He knew also how each of these various figures of Jewish history had reacted when faced with God's blessing. Abraham fell on his face. Sarah laughed. Hannah broke into song. Zechariah questions. He questions the angel. How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. It's not that he doubted the power of God. And it's not that he didn't want to believe. But here's the thing. It's one thing to know that God can work miracles in a general sense. It's quite another to know that God is going to do it for you personally. It's one thing to believe that God will deliver his people. It's quite another to believe that God is doing it through you and your family. I'm sure that if you asked Zechariah, do you think God can make a woman who is beyond childbearing years conceive and bear a son? Zechariah would have answered, do I think it? I, I know it. He's done it many times. But if you ask Zechariah, do you think he's going to do it for your wife? Then he would have answered, that would be nice, but, but, it's that but that always gets in the way. But how will I know? The angel responds to Zechariah's question first by saying, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. For Christians, Luke chapter 1 is probably our first introduction to the angel Gabriel. His visit to Mary is the most familiar story of Gabriel to us and the first one that comes to mind when we think of the angel Gabriel this visit of Gabriel to Zechariah comes just a few months before that one and is tied to it. We need to remember, though, that for Zechariah, this was not the first time he had heard of the angel Gabriel. Gabriel had appeared 500 years earlier to the prophet Daniel. Zechariah knew those stories well. In fact, much of what the Jews in Zechariah's day believed about the Messiah, whom they were waiting for, was based on the book of Daniel and the words of the angel Gabriel. For this angel to say, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, it's not like he was just telling Zechariah his name. This meant something big to Zechariah. This meant that God was about to fulfill those very prophecies that Gabriel had come 500 years earlier to reveal to Daniel. But Gabriel doesn't just deliver this news. He also provides the sign that Zechariah asked for. How would he know that what the angel said would come true? He would know because he would be struck mute for the next nine months. That doesn't seem quite fair. Sarah had laughed, and she hadn't been struck mute. Later in the chapter, Mary will ask a very similar question of Gabriel, and she won't be struck mute. I think, though, that Zechariah's being made mute was not so much a punishment as it was perhaps a blessing. After all, he had asked for a sign. The angel gave him what he asked for, a clear, unmistakable sign. But more than just a sign, perhaps this inability to speak was a gift. It gave him time 
to ponder in silence the majesty of what Gabriel had proclaimed. Maybe it was a gift for him to watch in silence as God worked his wondrous plan through his wife Elizabeth. Perhaps he will be able to dwell on the much larger implications of this miracle, that the birth was not just for he and his wife, but for the entire people of Israel, that God was bringing hope to the middle of the people's yearning. God was bringing life to their barrenness. God was bringing light into the darkness of the past. What a blessing it could be for Zechariah to simply listen in silence to what God had to say. Sometimes the things that come across to us as punishments are not so much intended as punishment as they are intended for our good, for our growth. Zechariah was able to learn and to grow and to witness the wonders of God during his months of silence. And when that time of silence was ended, the first thing Zechariah did, he didn't say, man, that was awful not being able to talk all those months. He didn't complain about how hard that was, how unfair that was. No, Zechariah had learned, he had grown, he had witnessed with his own eyes. The first thing he did when his voice was given back was to proclaim the glory of God. Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Zechariah saw that this birth was so much bigger than just he and Elizabeth. He received that testimony of the angel Gabriel that this birth was a part of God's plan of redemption going all the way back to the oath he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all our days. And then Zechariah spoke to his newborn son. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. To prepare his ways. To give knowledge of salvation to his people. The word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming. Specifically, it was used in reference to the approaching visit from the emperor, an event which required people to make certain preparations. It came to be used in the Christian context, not in relation to an earthly emperor, but to the eternal king. The Lord of creation is coming. We need to prepare. In a historical sense, that's what John the Baptist did. He announced the advent of the Lord so that the people of God could be ready. In a spiritual sense, we too are awaiting the advent of the Lord. Not in a, a baby that was born 2,000 years ago, but in Christ's return when all things will be put to rights and all peoples, both living and dead, will be judged. The Lord is coming. We need to prepare that is the message of the angels to us even today in this season of Advent. You see, angels are more than just beautiful decorations on our trees. Angels are more than the coolest costumes in the Christmas pageant. 
They're more than heartwarming characters in cute Christmas stories. Angels are the messengers of God who deliver to us the message of Advent. The Lord is coming. Let us prepare the way of the Lord. Amen. I invite you to stand now as you are able for our closing hymn, which is number 202 in the hymnals. People look east. Let us sing together. Please be seated for the benediction and for the choral benediction. Love the Lord is on the way. Let us prepare our hearts to receive the eternal King. Go in the name of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.